0: welcome to the good book club podcast where we make all our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy today's book club meeting featured a variety of books written on the topic of the mountain meadows massacre prior to our book club meeting a group of book club members spent the weekend at the actual site of the mountain meadows massacre and learned a lot about the events from our
1: guide co-author of vengeance's Mine: the mountain meadows massacre and its aftermath the wonderful Barbara Brown. These insights from the
0: site and other impressions gained from reading a variety of materials on the Mountain Meadows Massacre made this a fascinating and important discussion that I'm sure our listeners will find as meaningful as we all did. This The Good Book Club meeting was originally recorded on Sunday, September 10, 2023. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Good Book Club. I'm Rebecca. This is our September 10th edition. We're starting a little bit early this morning, so thank you, everybody, for being here. We're really excited to dive into our topic today. We're going to read our mission statement first, which is what we always do. And instead of me calling on somebody, I'm just going to read it myself today. So this is our The Good Book Club mission statement. Uh, The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experience relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life. Philosophy. So that's our book club mission statement, kind of keeps us grounded and guided and making sure that we're on the right path. Um, a couple little announcements before we get into the discussion. Several of us um, are actually here in St. George on a Mountain Meadows uh, massacre sort of experience, adventure. Um, We'll talk more about that later, but here's a fun flight of us visiting the St. George Temple with a little glow around us (laughs) and the Brigham Young House where Landon had to be escorted out because he was confronting the wonderful um, senior missionary guide. (laughs) And, And then we also got to take a wagon ride. So we've been having a lot of fun. And I'd just like to thank everybody that joined us down here for this because it's just been wonderful to spend time with all of you so really good um we still have two more books for those of you that maybe are zooming in for the first time um we have discussion leaders for each of our books you volunteer we have two more books that we need covered we have our november 12th one um it's called an immense world how animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us um this is going to be a really good one if this one kind of piques your interest go ahead and volunteer and leading a discussion is not complicated you can just kind of say hey everybody what do you think and guide us through i'm um, talking about it we also have uh, february 11th nobody has claimed this book yet the title is sex at dawn how we mate why we stray and what it means for modern relationships so if that book piques your interest uh, message me or put something in the chat that you'd be happy to take that book so we'd love to hear from from all of you it's really fun to have different discussion leaders with different perspectives perspectives each time. And we appreciate everyone who's already volunteered. Um, quickly, some upcoming events going on with the book club. Um, we still have other reading opportunities. I help John DeLynn run his Mormon Stories book club. We are reading Vengeance is Mine. We are going to be talking to Barbara Brown at a book club meeting there. And also the September 6th, Um, A new book that is coming out, I think in two weeks, you can pre-order it. This one is going to be good. So we're going to be talking to both authors. Those dates are kind of to be announced, but probably in the next month or so. So really fun to read along on these really awesome topics. Um, Another book that just kind of came on my radar, this is called Trauma, Trauma bonded by sarah westbrook Um, and we're going to have her on book club as a bonus event that's an event that's kind of on an evening where we have the author come in Um, there's a sale on her book going on right now like for the next two days it's called trauma bonded and you can get it for just a few cents 99 cents as an ebook. so this is a short sale i believe yes the ends on the 12th so grab a copy of this this is going to be good and we'll announce the date of that soon but this is getting a lot of buzz out there trauma bonded really good and sarah's an awesome person. Uh, for those of you in the Utah area, we are still having vintage thrive this is thrive for people of a certain vintage age you can self-report on that <laughs> um anyway it, it was going to be a couple day long conference it's now just one single event it's going to be on sunday september 17th at 11 a.m in provo it's going to be a potluck and a meeting and a mingle and it's going to be really really fun so um, you can get more information about that on the website ThriveBeyondReligion.org, and again that's on the 17th so next sunday a week from today That'll be good. Um, another exciting thing going on in Utah, this will be in Salt Lake County, but for those of us in Utah, um, this is going to be a ceremony, an offer, offering ceremony on Antelope Island. It's going to be on Saturday the 30th. The host is our book club friend, Darren Perry, who's a Shoshone elder and storyteller, and this is going to be an amazing Uh, song, dance, um, spoken word presentation, uh, sort of an offering to the Great Salt Lake to help it heal. So this is going to be pretty cool. Um, It doesn't cost anything. You can make a donation and um, you can freeze your screen and scan the barcode or you can get more information just kind of by Googling Antelope Island Offering Ceremony. So we're looking forward to this. Anyone who wants to join us. Let's see. Um, Our next book, because we always talk about that, is, oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this one, Carl Sagan and the Demon Haunted World. We have been meaning to read this forever. This is an absolutely incredible book, Science as a Candle in the Dark. And Lynette is going to be leading this book at the end of our discussion today. She'll be talking about this a little bit more and giving us a preview, but just kind of put this on your radar that we're finally getting around to reading this amazing book. And that brings us to today, where we called it the Mountain Meadows Massacre Mashup, where we encouraged everybody to read whatever book they could find about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And some people I've talked to have read books that I wasn't even aware of. So that is really exciting. Or even to look up some information about it and just talk about it. So uh, Landon and I will kind of be leading this discussion, but it's going to be just a huge group discussion, and we're all just going to participate and kind of talk. Talk this through. So that being said, welcome everybody. Uh Landon, why don't you unmute yourselves since we're co-discussion leaders here? Okay. There you go. Yeah, we've spent the whole uh last couple of days down here. And it's been uh it's been wonderful. It's also been uh very impactful, wouldn't you say, Landon?
2: Yeah, it's been a great weekend and uh we got to meet some really neat people, uh sev- several on here. I probably say uh, at least a quarter, maybe even up to a half, uh, attended yesterday. Uh, So it was really fun. Uh, I'm hoping everyone had a good time, and we're going to discuss each of the books. Uh, I know uh, there's a couple books that were read, and and, uh, we probably ought to get a feel for who's read what. Uh, I've read Vengeance is Mine, and then Will Bagley's uh, Blood of the Prophets. Uh, Bruce, you read
3: the Juanita uh, Brooks book this month, and then I had read
2: blood of the prophets previously and Yvonne you you read one that we hadn't even heard of um exactly what what was the one you ended up reading oh, yeah unmute yourself
4: okay it was called American Massacre it was published I believe 2002-ish Sal Sally Denton and um Barbara had had read it she said apparently long ago uh it's a from a complete non-Mormon I would say everybody has a bias. She's Sally is a journalist. She's a, um, so she's not a historian. She's a journalist. I would say it had a a, a non Mormon bias, probably. I don't know, but I thought it was fascinating. Very, very, um, quick read, um, uh, and all of the stuff that Barbara talked about had been accurately reported by Sally about the the Meadows Massacre. I thought. Okay. was
2: good <laughs> thanks I see Joel Joel had uh, chatted in that he'd read uh, massacre at Meadow uh, Mount Meadows uh which is the first book by Turley and I can't remember who else Barbara was an editor on that one but wasn't one of the authors co-authors of that one uh yeah. so that's another one is there is there any that uh we haven't mentioned that anybody read uh Jerry Lee
5: okay I read um will Bagley's book, Innocent Blood, which gives all of the documentation that he used in Blood of the Prophets. Um, and it, and especially interesting was how he tracked down the cover story that the inaccurate cover story about why the massacre took place. And I really recommend that one. Oh, good. Innocent Blood. It's part of a series of books. It's quite expensive, 40 or $50, but so worth it.
2: Oh, good, good. That that's interesting uh-huh. because yeah, uh, a lot of us really enjoyed Will's uh, book. We read it uh, two years ago when we came down here, and that's actually the reason that we wanted to have this mashup, uh, because as we start when we talked about Mountain Meadows, what we found is you know you, you've got different biases, different angles that it's coming at, and everyone's trying to cover things in a little bit different way. Uh, so you know, obviously Turley. Uh, was a spokesman for the church, he uh, he was a church historian, he's a, a lawyer, and almost every book he writes is uh, in defense of the church. Uh, and so, for those of us who have had experience listening to the church and their explanations of things, we, a lot of us are kind of on guard, going, uh, what can I believe and what can't I believe in this? Um, so, uh, that, that's why we wanted to look at that. But we've also heard, like with Will Bagley, we've heard, oh, he was very uh, prejudiced against Brigham Young, and he was a- after Brigham Young, and so he made a lot of assumptions that uh, that were inaccurate. Uh, I think that's why with Yvonne's book, uh, you know, we've got an author that's completely separate from the church, has nothing to do with the church, and is simply trying to record things in as non a way. So that's why we wanted to try to get a mashup and get everyone reading a little bit different books so that we could talk about the different biases and the different angles uh, that, that we come with. Um, Lee, it looks like you.
5: Um, Sally Danton did have a Mormon his background. Um, I read her book as well. And she's she did have a Mormon background. I'm not sure that she was raised Mormon, but at least her ancestors were Mormon. I do know that much.
2: OK, so, so she had some some background. Mm-hmm. Um, I see Joel saying Turley, but uh, in the chat. But I, I think I'm...
5: he's
0: correcting. Yeah. And, and feel free to use the chat, everybody. That's a fun way to kind of communicate, yeah. too, uh, while we're listening to each other. So there's a lot that we can be said. And everyone's kind of chiming in with what book they read. So that's that's excellent. We want to check the chat and see what everybody's done. So we do have some slides from yesterday, just some pictures that we thought would kind of set the tone. Um, that we just run through really quick. Yep. Uh,
2: and, I'll, and I'll I'll set that up, pull that up. I, I did just see in the chat, um, uh, Juanita Brooks. You you can't talk Mount Meadows massacre without Juanita <laughs> Brooks. She's the one who originally did did the work on it. Uh, she's she was a villain for so long in this community, and now it's nice to see as we and we'll show that in in the the slideshow as we went around that she's now kind of honored uh, for what she's done, uh, for standing up and doing the right thing and publishing the book uh, that got it all started. And of course, Juanita was a member of the church, uh, but uh, uh, from what I hear, it's very uh, even handed. Uh, She does have to be careful. She was threatened with excommunication. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Juanita Brooks uh, tried to get the, there was a packet uh, that uh, uh, what what's the guy's name? Uh, I want to say Hanson. Ne- uh,
0: Nephi Johnson. Are no, we talking uh, about the testimonials? It, it or? was, it was oh, a church report in the 1800s.
2: Yes. And he he yeah. went and gathered all of the affidavits for the church. He was a, a church historian. Gave it to the church and they locked it in their, in the first presidency vault. Uh, for years it was locked in the church uh, presidency's vault. And, uh, She tried to get that. If you remember in her story, she went to the church and tried to get that that set of documents, and they would not give it to her. Uh, So she ended up having to write the books without it. Um, Barbara Brown and Turley, actually, they were able to obtain uh, that packet of of, uh, testimonies or whatever and go through it. They say they've published that in, I can't remember, they've got a separate book that, uh, An- Andrew Jensen, that's correct. Thank you, Yvonne. Andrew Jensen had collected it and they they've put that in uh, in a, a separate book of the papers they use for the Mountain Meadow, so that supposedly everyone can go look at it. Again, I'm always a little skeptical because when you have something locked in your vault for 50 years that you won't let everybody have and then you give it to somebody, I kind of have to question... Did you give them everything <laughs> if there was something that was, you know, could have uh, uh, incriminated someone? Did you go in and take that out? Uh, and we, we'll never know that. Uh, but Bruce. Reductive. Yeah, I just
3: I read the Juanita Brooks and. I thought she just was very measured and tried to her analysis seemed to be trying to be complete, but fair and what she knew and what she didn't know. And it was interesting. She was born in 1898. So the book was published in 1950. So she was, what, 52 years old at the time. And then she died in 1989 and 91. So right at the beginning, I listened to the audio book. She made just a slightly snarky comment about the, you know, financial and, and power position of the church. And I think she was talking about, you know, the pressure that she had received. So I just thought, you know, she's the original gangster in this whole thing. And I just was very impressed by what she did. And she stood by her guns. So that
2: was just kind of my thought. Thank
0: yeah, you. absolutely. That's absolutely well, I'm going to go ahead
2: and share the pictures from yesterday um, that yeah. we, we took and I'm just going to, we're just going to kind of go through them uh, fairly quickly and tell you what they represent. But for those that are, that were out there, um, if there's any thoughts that you have or feelings that you have, because it is very an emotional uh, a- activity when you're out there um, to, to experience it, uh, you know, please, uh, please feel free to, um, add in anything that you'd like to say. Um, yeah. so this is- I
0: guess we should, we should let everybody know that originally we were supposed to tour with Barbara Brown and Richard Turley. Then Richard Turley came down with COVID. So he did not join us. We were just with Barbara, which actually was amazing. So she's the one that led our tour and you'll see pictures of her throughout. So it was not Richard Turley. Um, it was just Barbara Brown.
2: Yes. So um, we'll start out. We, we met uh, at, at the top of where the monument is. Uh, this is in the parking lot before uh, and Barbara's the one in the middle there with the red hat. Uh, and she kind of gave us an introduction and uh, told us what we were going to see, uh, etc. Uh Just so those of you, Barbara used to be an editor for the church uh, for the church magazines. Uh, she, went to be a mother. And during that time, she was able to uh, work with her, uh, uh, she she took an ad from Turley uh, that he needed an assistant to help with the, with the book, the first book he was writing. Uh, so she was a researcher on that book. Uh, so for the last 17 years, she's been researching this. Uh, she was paid for the church by the church uh, uh, for quite a few years in the research on the first book she's now the ceo of signature book which if those of you that don't know signature book uh, they produce both faithful and questioning uh uh literature uh she does still attend church so she's fairly uh level in in her ideas and when you when you talk to her she's she's very nuanced uh so she she was a good and i i felt fair and balanced uh person those that were there oh. felt uh that she, you know, she wasn't afraid to answer the questions or talk about the questions uh, that we had. So uh, it was a really good tour in that way. Uh, Bruce? I just, am I correct that she has porn shoulders? Yes, she, she does. does.
1: Right?
0: Like we said, she's very nuanced. So there Thank you me. go. Yeah, it, it would have been a whole different tour had Tourly been with us because we've been going around to several of their speeches and talks that they've been giving with the book. I've interviewed them on Steve Pineker's show. And with Turley, it's a whole different story as far as the answers that you get. And it, it's, a, it's a spin. You can really tell it's a spin. But Barbara, she really goes right at the hard questions, which is what made this really, really interesting for all of us. So.
2: so this is the entrance, the gate, into the monument. So uh, for those that don't uh, know, uh, there's a what's called a cairn down there. It's a pile of stones. This was originally... Uh, when, after the massacre happened, uh, the bodies uh, laid out in the field for a year, uh, nobody nobody buried them. Uh, and finally, the uh, federal troops from up in Salt Lake made it down there, and they were just completely disgusted by uh, how this had been left. And they gathered up uh, all the bones they could find, and they buried them uh, here under the cairn. The cairn stands very near where the actual, uh, where the wagons had circled and dug in where they were camped and where the fight happened at. Uh, so it's right on kind of the corner of where the fight happened at. Um, the, the original Karen that was built by the troops, uh, was torn down over time. And then they built another monument that, uh, didn't, uh, didn't last and was falling apart. Uh, in the nineties, uh, president Hinckley, uh, decided that they needed to have a monument uh, as uh, i think there was some groups that were asking that the church do something about this so the church built this karen on the site where the other karen was um one of the hard parts i have with this is is that the big sign as you come in says you know the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints uh, which seems a little tacky and that you're uh you're the one that did this atrocity, and now you're making a big sign like, "Oh, what? Thank us for putting this up, or whatever." But, uh, uh, but it is uh, a, a solemn. The original would have had a cross at the top. Uh, the the original soldiers put a cross on top of this, Karen, that said, "Vengeance is mine," saith the Lord, uh, from a scripture. Uh, That was torn down. Uh, Will Bagley in his book says that uh, Brigham Young ordered it torn down, that he stopped and he put his hand up and it was torn down. Uh, Barbara argues that that was not the case, that there were people who said they saw it after that time period and it was still there. So some controversy on that. But uh, this is a closer up look of of the uh, Karen. and there are uh, bones still buried there. They actually dug up bones when they were putting the Karen in there. Uh, the first, they, they did a survey. Uh, and of course, uh, the church was doing this. So who did they hire to to do it? But BYU University, <laughs> which is kind of ironic that the university named after uh, the, the leader of the church uh, that did this, uh, did it. And they said uh, there weren't bones there in the second shovel Full of dirt, they dug up human remains, and uh, that started a whole investigation. Uh, and but they were reinterred, and and they're uh, now under the uh, under this monument. Some of the bones, the 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 the, the bodies are kind of strewn throughout. So uh, we spent probably thirty minutes here with Barbara uh, giving us a, a kind of an overview of the battle. Uh, so you can see us here. It was very hot. It was like a hundred degrees, uh, but. Uh, So then from there, we went up to the, uh, uh, there's a hill up above where you can look over and there's a memorial there. Uh, You can look over the uh, whole site. And that's what we're doing here. Uh, You can see the site spread out uh, behind us. And uh, Barbara kind of explained each of the areas to us as we stood there. Uh, Several people came and kind of joined our group because they could hear what she was saying and they listened in. So uh, I think several people got to learn uh this is the uh this is the the valley uh mountain Meadows uh, it would have been greener and lusher we're told uh back in those days uh they uh, had some washouts and stuff that kind of dried out the land a bit uh so uh but th- this is what the valley looks like you can see it's a very beautiful valley this was the last spot on the uh Spanish trail or for people who were going to Northern California, they would come down this way and then head out across the desert. Um, so this was the last stop where they'd fatten up the cows before they crossed crossed over. Uh, so you can see the valley here, and I'm trying, to, uh, I'm trying to picture this, this is the field where the men would have marched across uh, just before they were shot. Uh, they were shot kind of more towards the right-hand side of this picture. Uh, and they march from the left hand side of the picture. Uh, and and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, this is where, yeah, this includes the shot of where they would have been shot at uh, out in that op- open area there. Uh, somewhere between. Yeah, this is the right the- edge of
0: that other picture. Yeah, yeah going yeah, forward. The, right the edge wagons is- would have been farther toward the right, and the men yep. would have been marching toward the right and shot probably in the center ish toward the right.
2: And, and they they did take and bury the men in a ravine. They left the women out in the open uh, because they the men were shot in a line, and so that looked like they would have been executed, and they didn't want that, so they drug the bodies into a ravine and kind of quickly buried them. Uh, they are still uh, there. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Everett Bassett. We we did a thing a couple years ago, and you can look that up on the book club. Uh, talks about the grave sites that he found and the soldiers uh, made some grave sites along that river that nobody knew about. And uh, so if you want to see something really neat, that was uh, that thing's got like 10,000 views of people. It's really an interesting. uh, Yeah.
0: And Everett Bassett is an archaeologist, not LDS, who just fascinated with the site. Um, His ex-wife was involved in forensic research on some of the bones when they were uncovered. And so he just thought, we don't know where the graves are. What? We can figure this out. So he used maps from the army. Um, he used topographical information and maps, and within a very short period of time, like like an afternoon, he was able to determine where actual the bodies were, where they were buried by soldiers after the fact. So it's pretty interesting. It's an episode on uh, the Good Book Club for post-mormons So look it up.
2: And it is on private land, so we weren't able yep. to go see it. And they're trying to kind of keep it uh, hidden where it's at uh, because they don't want people. but but
0: the descendants can visit and barbara i should say that barbara and richard were here in town because they're interacting with the descendants the actual anniversary of course is tomorrow and the descendants have the opportunity to visit you know some of the actual burial mounds and and you know pay their respects there but nobody wants anything touched all of them are in consensus as we were told just leave everything we don't want anything dug up we don't want dna analysis we just want it to be a resting place
2: so this is still from that hill. You can see right here where my mouse is. Uh, that's the parking lot that we started in. And so the, this open area right here is where the, the wagons were circled. Uh, this is where the battle was fought. Uh, the Mormons were kind of on this side. The stream's a lot deeper than it was at the time uh, because of washouts and different things over time. Uh, but the, Mo- the Mormons uh, were attacking from this area. This hill right uh, here is the hill that uh, John D. Lee came over initially and tripped over the guy watching the cows. They believe the cattle were back in this area right here. And that the shepherd guys, I I think that's what they called them, but they were watching over the cows, and he tripped over one of them. He woke up, and uh, he tried to shoot him, and his gun didn't go off, and the man ran down the hill into the camp, and John D. Lee followed him and shot him in the camp. That woke everybody up. John Lee escaped and got out. Uh, but that's that's what started the whole incident. And then, of course, once they came out, uh, they put everything in the wagons, and the wagons would have rolled along right through here with the women and children and the men marching behind them over to that area that we showed a little bit earlier. Um, so uh, this is at the uh, men's and boys' uh, memorial. Uh, so they would have been shot right in the fields behind us there. Uh, we don't know exactly the spot, but it would have been between here and the and the river. Uh, and a, the trail is not far off of this, um, and they were probably walking down the actual trail uh, at the time. This is kind of interesting because this did get put by the families of the victims, put the wording on here. Uh, there are three different groups, and they kind of are at odds with each other sometimes as well. Um, it's interesting because the wording that they chose, they said, uh, uh, oh, this is the women and children. Sorry, this, this one's the women and children one. They would have been off to the right. And we'll try to show that one. Uh, but it just says uh, women and children wounded and died near here. They were killed without just cause. Most lie in unmarked graves uh, somewhere in this valley. Uh, so it really doesn't tell you a lot about what happened. Uh, you know, they All doctored. the
0: signage is vague, very yeah, vague. Or they and were and I at first thought perhaps that was the church. But as we learned from Barbara, a lot of the signage um, was created by the survivor's uh, descendants. The so they also kept it a little passive and a little vague as far as what happened. So and maybe that's by design for them. I'm not sure. Tracy,
2: Tracy you had a what? So
1: oh, I just had a, a question. Um, I was there probably about seven or eight years ago. I didn't get to go down to the park. I had a little dog with me, but I noticed that all of the places that they had the memorials all had flowers mm-hmm. when I visited there. Just
0: something. People go there all the time and they leave things all the time. When we went two years ago, since I'm a descendant of a perpetrator, uh, one of the uh, majors in the militia, I left little rocks that said, I am really sorry. You know, the great, great granddaughter, great, great, great granddaughter of a militia member. And I wasn't the only one doing that. There were other little remembrances. There are trinkets, dolls, wreaths, rocks. Um, So many people are descendants or just care or just feel just sort of connected to the site i think right now because it's the anniversary you're going to see more formal uh flower arrangements and wreaths and things because the descendants groups come back here every year like they're always here um at this time because it's so important to them so we definitely saw a very uh Formal floral arrangements this time, but also just all kinds of trinkets and things that were just left on the crosses, little memorials. People care; they visit once they understand what it is. So, Uh, Tracy, lots of
1: flower arrangements. I saw um, a bible. I was really impressed that somebody was going and honoring
3: still. Yeah, Yeah. Tracy, your audio is really poor quality. Is there an option for you to change the source of your microphone on Zoom? Uh Cause...
0: Yeah, I could understand, but yeah, we can, so, but yeah, that's what makes it really meaningful, as you see when you go, how meaningful it is to, to so many, and, and all kinds of different little remembrances, because it still matters so much, so, and, and beautiful thing, fall flowers this time, so they were gorgeous, seasonal.
2: Yeah, one thing they pointed out was, you know, with the polygamous side, um, there are literally almost a million descendants of the perpetrators mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that, that are alive, and then of course, the family uh, there—you know—there were only the seventeen kids that survived, and so you know the descendants are their relatives, so they're not nearly as abundant as the perpetrators' relatives. But they're—they're they're still probably you know hundred thousand of them at this point, you know, uh, over the, since the one hundred thirty years uh, and that spread out. It may not be that large, but uh, so there are. I think it's
0: pretty of- large. And Barbara made the point. She said, "You may not think." that you have an ancestor involved. I didn't think so. I knew that my ancestor settled Springville and then he settled Hiram. It's a very little window. If they were called down to the Iron Mission, there's a very good chance in Cedar City just for a couple years, that 56, 57, 58, they were involved. So Barbara's like, and we were all saying, everybody, look, go do a little bit of research because you actually may have a connection that you're not aware of. And somebody in our group even said, I, reading some of these names feel I may have a connection to um, the Francher Baker party. So you do not know you may be one that's even more intimately connected than, you know, you might want to look into it.
2: Bruce. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of our group had relatives, uh, mm-hmm. Joel, uh, uh, oh. uh what was his relative? His relative was re- the
0: Indian interpreter. The yeah, interpreter. He relayed Brigham, I think, Brigham Young's uh, messages to the Native Americans. Absolutely. So that was a pivotal role. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Bruce. Bruce. Yeah. OK, I just looked up. Um, um, John D. Lee had 19 wives and 56 mm-hmm. children.
4: Yeah. His,
3: his descendants, uh, former Solicitor General Rexy Lee, and he was my when I was at BYU, he was my stake president. Yeah. John, um Senator Mike Lee, who's recently made some very stupid statements, is, is also a descendant. Utah Supreme Court Justice Thomas R. Lee, uh, Gordon H. Smith, you recall the Mormon leaks where he was the senator yeah. uh, from Oregon and was saying that he was waiting for the church's orders, you know, as a senator and said that he supported the Iraq war because he thought the Mormon missionaries could go into Iraq. That was through the Mormon leaks.
4: Yeah, uh, I remember that. You know, videos.
3: <laughs> um, also, uh, Mo Udall, a Democrat from Arizona, Stuart Udall, a Democrat from Arizona, uh, Mark Udall, a Democrat. These are all elected officials from Colorado. Tom Udall, um, a Democrat from New Mexico, and Stuart Udall was the Secretary of the interior under Kennedy and Johnson. So, I mean, yeah, just John just D. John Lee. Lee. <laughs> yeah. And and as yeah. as I was listening to Juanita Brooks' book, you know, every name were names in the word lists where I grew up, you know, every single name. And it, one of the things I found interesting is one of the perpetrators left and went to a Mormon colony in Southern Colorado, Manassa. And that's where my father's family, they were immigrants from Denmark and um, Alabama, and that's where they settled. So I don't think he, I'm a descendant, but boy, my Mormon world is filled with the names of the people involved in the massacre and and everything else. It's It's just like, it is still a very, I think, insular community when you start looking at it. Um, and and having 50, 19 wives and 56 children, I mean, he really,
1: he, he was, was put
3: down.
0: <laughs> he was, and a lot of the church leadership names now you recognize from the leaders of the militia. And I'll also say, even if you've never heard this story in your family, oh, I don't have an ancestor, that was me. This was not told in my family nor you know on purpose and not known in my family. So even if you have not heard it in your family, it pays to look into it. I've seen some people in the chat now say, you know, I'm a direct descendant of this and that. And we're all connected. We all have a connection to this. So it's important to, to learn about that and find that out. So where do we go next, Landon?
2: Uh, yeah, one, one thing I wanted to point out, one thing Barbara pointed out that I had not read or heard before, but she said, uh, you may think, you know, everyone in Cedar City was involved with this. And she said, that's not the case. Uh, the, the, the militia that was there She said, all of them were church leaders. Mm -hmm. They were all in the stake high council, stake presidency, bishops, bishoprics. Uh, it was, it was the leaders that did this. And I actually asked the question at one of the things we went to, I asked it to Richard Turley. I said, boy, it almost seems like the people who did this were their families were rewarded because we hear all their names, uh, are all the higher ups in the church now. Um, and, uh. Turley de- denied that, saying no one was rewarded. There's just a million of them. And that's why they're, you know, everyone's related to them eventually. Uh, I don't know. I I take a little bit of exception to that because I, you know, it, the, the people who didn't take part in it, uh, you know, how many of them were <laughs> are in leadership positions now? I don't know. Uh, Yvonne. You
3: there, Yvonne? You need to unmute yourself. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah.
4: Well, I tried to. Un- Never mind. <laughs> I just want I just wanted to read you this little. So I did feel like Barbara was even Barbara was a little bit apologetic of the church, and of course we were standing in front of that monument that Gordon B. Hinckley dedicated in 1999, and I just wanted to read. Uh, this is from that book, American Massacre. What he said. When he did, when he was there at the Mountain Meadows massacre in 1999, and dedicated it, and he said about that, that which we have done here, in other words, making the monument, must never be construed as an acknowledgment on the part of the church of any complicity in the occurrences of that fateful day, and and that that is a blatant lie when when you you know, and all of the people who did it were high officials in the church. Barbara just you know said that I. I, I I was, when I read that statement, this thing, I thought, wow.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's hard to, it's it, and and they also talked about, you know, we should all be, learn how to deal with this and be apologetic. We saw this uh, at a couple of things we went to, that was the discussion, yet the church itself has never really apologized for this. Uh, so to, to teach, to everyone should be this but they don't have to that that that's kind of a hard pill to swallow Bruce
3: yeah I guess my question is when that person said the church wasn't involved were they just trying to say that Brigham Young and the highest church leader wasn't involved because (laughs) as Yvonne pointed out there were I mean when you have you know stake presidents and people who were talking <clears throat> with Brigham Young regularly involved that's the freaking church
0: it is but they <laughs> and, did what they did basically and i was very interested once i found out that my ancestor was on the high council did take that vote to go ahead and follow through on the, what happened that day um Basically, later, as word got out, early 2000s, they came out with an article in the ensign and they said, we've looked at this, we've researched this, we know you all have questions. And they laid the blame squarely on local leadership, like my ancestor. That's pretty much what they said. And I think we've all read this. So I think we're going to go into this a little bit later. But yeah, there's the church and there's the church, right? And they have to protect the church at the top. So.
2: Yeah, and it's conveniently they throw the terms around kind of loosely because at the yeah. time it was a, pretty much a theocracy. All the church leaders were also the government leaders, so exactly. it's easy to say, "Oh, they were acting in the role of their govern, you know, government uh, roles, their military roles, etc." But if there's no distinction, then you can't say the church wasn't involved either <laughs> uh, if they're all one and the same. Uh, so yeah,
0: convoluted. Yep. Yeah.
3: yeah, I wanted to thank. Say- uh Dallin, for putting in the list of who was involved. Yep. I'm looking at that, that right now. Right now, I don't see anybody directly from my family, but I do see one name that I know has married into my family that I'm going to take a look. It's one of my dad's cousin's husband's family. And um, yeah, no, it's terribly interesting, because until today, I didn't have any idea other than the listing in Juanita Brooks and Will Bagley's books of some of the names. But like I mentioned before, all those names are on the ward list of every ward I've ever been in. And so they're very familiar.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: And this was Barbara's story herself, that she's researched this for decades and did not realize that she herself was a descendant um, of a perpetrator and finally made that determination. And so that was very (laughs) that was very emotional for her to find out after learning all this, that she actually was indeed herself a descendant of a perpetrator. So it takes it to a whole nother level.
2: So this is the men's memorial here. um, And I got the two mixed up they look very similar um <laughs> so the men would have been shot out in the field out about where those fence posts are probably right along in that area uh there so it's really humbling as you look out at that and think about that there were 30 or 40 men march side by side with the militia who on order the militia just pulled the guns and shot them in the head um and killed them right there in a the line uh, so very humbling to watch um i think that's is that the women's or the that's, I think that's the men's think, yeah uh, as well
0: like uh, you said they're very similar
2: this is the group that went uh yeah. so uh, very good looking group of people <laughs> <laughs> but we had quite a few out there uh so it was really fun uh to get to know to get to know everyone so um again this is looking out over the, where the uh this a little bit closer you can see this area right here is where they would have been surrounded in the wagons and where the fight would have would have happened uh there at mountain meadows so um and this i think if i remember right is this the ridge line where the women mm-hmm, that's the ridge were line over? um and then we're no this is the knoll. this is that knoll that oh, would,
0: okay. would have come Good over direction.
2: at the top yeah so i'm gonna okay. Rebecca, can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, can you
0: reverse the slide to show the big one first? Can you flip? There you go. So this (laughs) is something that is really, really interesting. We talked to Barbara as we were driving down and we told her we were going to be touring around during the day, downtown St. George, and then going to the site later. And she said, oh, you have to go see the quilt. And I had heard her mention it before, but I wasn't sure where it was displayed. So there are two quilts that are identical, almost identical. And the quilts were made by survivors Um, descendants and also perpetrators descendants and they joined together and made different squares to put into one quilt of remembrance. So Barbara has a square there and one of the quilts is displayed in Arkansas where the Baker-Frencher party um, originated and one of the quilts is displayed in the courthouse downtown St. George and so we were able, uh, we're so glad that Barbara reminded us because we were able to take everybody over there and look at this just gorgeous amazing quilt and like I mentioned about Barbara before when she made the first quilt square um, for Arkansas she didn't know that she was a Descendant of a perpetrator. So her square is different on this quilt because she was able to add the name of her ancestor who was in the militia. And I myself found two squares uh, made by descendants um, of my illustrious ancestor, and his name is there on the quilt. So I took a picture and I'm going to show that to my family to see if they will finally believe me (laughs) that our ancestor was involved. This is my grandfather's grandfather. I mean, it's very close, and my family will not listen to me or believe me. I know you guys have heard me rant about this before, but it's very upsetting, you know, which is why it matters today. So the really interesting thing, if we can go into the detail now about the quilt, that really was absolutely heartbreaking. So you can see the squares there. Um, each person made a square, kind of describing their story. You know, I'm a descendant of a survivor, a perpetrator. They'll put the names but all around the quilt are these lovely floral patterns. So each one represents a family. Now you can see the little two buds, red and a dark red. Those are names of very young children that survived in that family. But the other part of that vine are the names of the family members that were killed. So you can see so clearly, here's a little family of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight members of this family were killed. Those two little children were left. And you can look lower you can see there's three little children and you can count up that family it just shows you how these survivors lost everyone and they have the names and the ages so it's an incredible quilt um i think maybe we'll try to post some links of where you can see a better closer up picture of it but it's just you know an amazing healing remembrance that they put together but for those of us looking at it you just it really hits home when you see that vine. And if you go back to the original, uh, the big picture, you can see, no, sorry. the Yeah, the vine goes all the way around. So every time you see those little red flowers, um, I know it's not the greatest picture, and you can see leaves around it. Each one of those leaves represents a family member that was murdered and so, yeah, this quote was very important. We spent some time there and it was, you know, several people were like, OK, that's enough. I'm going. <laughs> you know, it's just, it just really gets you. But it's really important to view everything and to talk about it like we're doing today. So that's why we're excited to discuss this.
2: Yep. So um, so that's the uh, the overview of what we did yesterday. Um, so we wanted to jump into the book and start talk, talking about the book. Um, we have a poll first, though. Um, we have a right. little
0: poll that we can take because I was curious, kind of where we're all if coming your mom's from. John's hand is up.
2: Let's ask. Oh, okay. Let's, let's, let's talk to Ivan first,
0: then we'll and then Bruce poll. will
4: bring up the poll. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Before we move on from the women and children, and I just felt like for those of us who are out there that that uh, Barbara s- seemed to excuse the horrible and brutal murder a little bit. And I don't know. I'm just going by my book, right? But but she said that that the you know whoever it was took the Indians and that they are the the and they were the ones that came and attacked them. And she kind of skipped over my question when I said, so this is about the forensic evidence when they dug up the bones. Uh, then, then the Batco dug up those bones in 1999 when the church decided to make the monument. And this she referred to this Shannon Novak, which is, who's the University of Utah forensic anthropologist that they that the descendant said, I don't want it done at BYU. And this book gives a little bit of information about Shannon Novak and, and, and how she had just excavated. She and her colleagues had just she said they had been prepared for signs of brutality because they had just finished um, excavating doing an analysis of the mass grave in the Serbian War for the criminals. So she was you know pretty uh, recognized in her um, her science. And it said that in reconstructing approximately 18 skulls from the 2605 pieces of bone from 28 victims of women and children, the scientists found startling new testimony, in the first physical evidence located in the 20th century, it was evident that the murders had been committed by white men rather than Paiute Indians commonly blamed for all the attacks. And that Lee could not possibly have acted alone in the mass murder of this order. And the Paiute leaders claimed the new fl- the forensic evidence supported their own oral histories, of course, of the Tribune in Rockland. But I mean, the the... the the forensic evidence was that these women and children were as the book, this book describes that horrific scene, how they pursued them and bludgeoned them and killed them. And they were, I'm sorry, they were our ancestors. It it wasn't Indians trying to scalp them that they that they tried to make according to this forensic evidence. And then she says that um that uh the that the examined bones. But anyway, she said that it was by order that the, the University of Utah ordered her and her team to stop because of pressure from the church that they could not do anymore because it was very damning. That's right. It. <laughs> and
0: Barbara, said, Barbara had said, because that was a great question, you know, don't we want to know? Don't we want to know the details? And I will say you're absolutely correct. My ancestors role was shooter and clubber. That clubber, that is what he was called, because obviously everyone's running and scattering. Some men on horseback have to chase them down and yes. in person, up close and personal. This is what my ancestor did. Shoot or club women and children. Again, I have a lot of trauma over this. It's very difficult to, to wrap your brain around. But Yvonne's question was was great. Why not find out more? Why not, you know, reconstruct? Um, and Barbara told us that the descendants said, Stop right there. We don't want to know anything more, you know, and, and I I'm not a descendant of a survivor. I'm a descendant of a perpetrator. So um, I don't know that mindset. I, I can guess at it. But you're right, Yvonne. That does tell you a lot more about what happened. Had they been able to continue to delve into it, and they weren't, they were shut down within 24 hours. They said, gather everything up, put it back. We're burying it. We do not want any more information. So maybe we have as much as we need. I don't know. Bruce, yeah. did you have a comment? Yeah.
3: I just had one observation as I, you know, read. Uh... Juanita Brooks book, you know, the Indians may have been help, help the Mormons in the initial kind of attack when the wagon train circled itself. But when, you know, the flag of truce, and they marched everybody out, I don't think the Indians were involved in that at all. So when they marched the men out, and they marched the women and children out, those were all Mormons. And that's where I think the majority of the murders took place. So this, at least the way I'm interpreting it, was no, she, white she, Mormons.
0: Barbara told us the the Native Americans were waiting over the knoll once the women and the wagons were brought there, and then the white men said, "Okay, go, 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 get them." But it did, you know, it then men Mormons had to get jump in and also help. So uh, and, is and that we'll how you understood it, Landon? He,
2: he also said the Indians were hiding in the trees. But how, but again, how much of the killing they did because they had bows yeah. and arrows and tomahawks, and yeah. the, the whites had the not guns. That's not what the
0: forensics show. And and I think that's what Yvonne was trying to say. The forensics do not show that kind of intent. Yeah, and, and they show my place, ancestor with a gun. <laughs> yes.
3: Yeah, trying to place blame, possibly in part on the Indians, but completely on the Indians, that doesn't the, pass. The, the Indians out.
2: had no motivation to do it. So nope. even if they were involved, they nope. were there just to help their allies. Um, yeah, they were skeptical. You know, they got some things. of the clothes and other things and they were promised some of the some of the cows, but the the whites were the ones who were in trouble. They knew they were in trouble, and they were the ones who were motivated to make sure that no one was left that could talk. Yep. Um they so, orchestrated all yeah, of Yeah, and, and Jerry Lee brings up a good uh you Governor Levitt was the was the one who ordered the forensics to stop. <laughs> and uh and he was a descendant of the perpetrators. It's, it's also important to keep in mind, there's three family groups that mm-hmm. say they act for the family. Some of those are LDS. We met Ron Loving, who is the one who went and asked for this to stop. And he was an he he wasn't a member, but he joined the church and he was a fanboy of President Hinckley. All he did was show us all the things he'd talked to of President Hinckley and how President Hinckley had written him letters and everything. He, he I got to talk to President Hinckley almost daily. Well, I when when we were done, this was two years ago, when we were done talking to him, we were kind of like, I think the church was using this guy, uh yeah. because they needed people on the family group who would uh, who would work with them and right. who would,
0: align who,
2: who would align with what they were trying to do. And and yeah. we got that feeling just talking to him two years ago that he was uh, that he was kind of being used. He was mm-hmm. he was kind of a, a star by President Hinckley. And then he joined the church and then uh, uh, he even told us we were there to do Bagley's book. Uh, and he said, "Oh no, 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 no! Don't read Bagley's. You got to read Turtley's book." Um, they opened up all the I archives it to it. Oh well, my yeah, gosh! They open them up to people who are only going to tell their story. You know that's that's wow. hard to swallow. So, uh, so let's, let's
0: do our poll. Yeah, okay. let's go. Let's go to the poll. Let's do our poll really quick. I think this will be good just to try to find out if you haven't taken a poll before. It should be pretty easy. So, um, choose one of these as a Mormon. Um, What level of knowledge, meaning, you know, growing up in the church, uh, what level of knowledge did you feel that you had about the Mountain Meadows Massacre? Um, I already knew many, if not most of the details um, that I have read about in our book club books. So that means you were totally aware, as long as you can remember. Um, I had heard of the Mountain Meadows Massacre in general, but I knew few details and especially about the Mormon involvement, meaning that you were probably told, oh, it was the Native Americans that did it. Or I never heard it mentioned at all, uh, as I was growing up in the church. So I think this will be interesting. Just uh, choose which one. I can't vote
2: because I'm an admin, but I'd never heard of it. Uh, You had never
0: actually heard of it Until
2: I was an adult, I had never heard of it. And I grew up in Utah. I grew up uh, active (laughs) LDS. I went to Utah history in my school. Uh, I
3: I can't vote either because I'm the host, but I never heard of it until I was an ex-Mormon for decades.
2: And, and yeah, that's so why I'm so I didn't curious know anything about, this about poll. it until the book club. Yeah. yeah. So I'd, I'd heard of it before, you know, in the last few years, but growing up, but I not
0: growing it. up, it wasn't yeah. knowledge. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's five, why I'm so curious. The results.
2: Five more seconds on the
0: poll. Okay. Here we go. Ah. Uh, there you go. That's kind of how I thought it would look, because uh, that was me growing up. I'd heard about it, but you know, certainly never heard I had an ancestor because everyone in my family's in denial. And you know, it was just something so interesting. Let's look at our next poll question. Okay. We just have these two. Let's
1: see,
0: because I'm also curious about this. And this is uh, for those of you that did know about it in whatever capacity. What was the underlying message that you got? Um, this should be discussed and understood and learned from, I mean, it was talked about openly, all the nuances of it. Uh, this should just be considered something we'll never really be able to understand, so let it go, don't really focus on it. Or, and this one is mine, I'll vote ahead, there is something very sinister about this and we do not talk about it, like Fight Club. The number one rule of Mount Meadows Massacre is we do not talk about Mount Meadows Massacre. <laughs>
2: And that would be for anybody who knew mixed about on that, that one. Book. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, well, you didn't know it all, Landon. Like, so you yeah. We yeah. don't talk about it, but uh, there there was blame to go around on both sides. That's kind of the really? message I got.
3: Wow. Okay. okay. Let's do another five seconds on the poll, and then we'll end it and see the results.
0: Interesting. Yeah, definitely not the first one. <laughs> not at all. Although I hope we all now realize the first one is, you know, really what needs to happen, right? It needs to be more out in the open. So that's really, that's extremely interesting.
3: I I, I come back to, like, in my evaluation, having left the church, what the major problems with the church are, is one, honesty, and two, transparency. And I think that covers so many aspects of the church and Mountain Meadows honesty and transparency are things that are lacked in the narrative, along with financials and everything else about the church Uh honesty and transparency are, are kind of my criticisms of the church.
0: Yeah, I agree and I think that's one of the major takeaways, the modus operandi, the way things operate back then, it's just as relevant today. It's the very same thing, <laughs> just a, a you know, a different uh just a different way to look at it. But um so Landon, let's see. Maybe I I have a question to kind of open to everybody. Is there anything that you read that you honestly had never read before and it absolutely surprised or shocked you either good, bad, ugly? Is there anything that anybody came across that was You just had to put your book down and say i did not know that because when i first started reading about it there were several things like that does anybody have anything they like to share a moment where they just kind of couldn't believe what they were reading in whatever book that you chose to read or however you got your information
2: i i can go but uh if if, uh
4: yvonne you you, sorry but uh, and i'm just trying to find the page so i could read it to you but uh, um it was how uh th- I was very surprised by how wealthy the the Fancher train, the fancher train uh, wagon train was, how well respected, how interconnected, how they were mainly women and children, most, you know, families, very well prepared for the trek, very wealthy. In fact, uh Sally Denton mentions that they had, I can't, and she has the exact amount because she has a lot of background And I don't know how true it is, but they had gold under the wagon boxes. <laughs> they had all this gold and they started out with over a thousand head of cattle that they wow. were driving across to a uh, 40 wagons. They started out with 40 wagons. Well to do. I was, I was surprised. You know, one always thinks they are these pioneer immigrants, yeah. you know, just, wow. they were so prepared for the trip. So well to do. They, they were, uh crack shots and horsemen and cattlemen and they were (laughs) top-notch
0: yeah no they were and they had made the trek many many times back and forth i always like to compare it have you seen the series yellowstone like these were the they these were those guys right the upper echelon of the society back then and that is a motivation a lot of people don't want to recognize that but um Wanting their resources, I think, was a motivation that a lot of people don't talk about. So, and then of course the rumors. Oh, you know, these were members of the mob. These were low lives. They were doing terrible things in town. Not at all. These were upstanding citizens. And Barbara made that very clear. Making a trek, and in no way anything that they ever did, uh, they deserved any of this. So, ooh, Tracy.
3: You're muted. Trader.
1: In this last book, Dungeons, I was uh, surprised that they actually brought up that Mormon had been reading other wagon trains before this one. Although that had been something I'd been told
6: yeah, yeah no, if you couldn't you hear that. Tracy,
1: if
0: you couldn't hear Tracy, um, she talked about the idea, and this was new to me too, the rating of other wagon trains. And I think maybe that's what Landon was going to bring up too. This is a piece of the puzzle that we did not know even two years ago when we read Will Bagley's book, we didn't really understand. And this is sort of a key to it. So Landon, do you want to maybe explain a little bit about what that means? Because Tracy is absolutely yeah. right. That was sort of a pivotal concept that I did not understand and put it all in context for me.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I can explain that. Um, and, and I'll say, along with that, I was surprised that they were from Arkansas, because I'd always heard they were from Missouri. <laughs> uh, so I was surprised when I first heard they were from Arkansas. Uh, but yeah, the so the theory, th- this is a new theory that's in Vengeance is Mine that uh, was put out by uh, Barbara and, and Rick Turley. And what they did is they started doing a a kind of a study uh, and they found out that 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 this wasn't the only wagon train that had been attacked Uh, multiple wagon trains had been attacked uh, within the very same month where cattle were stolen and and people were killed uh, as part of this, Uh, and so. Uh, when they looked back at it, they started going through it and they, they went through some of the journals and they found that Brigham Young had actually called together kind of a war council. Because if you remember, Johnson's army was uh, coming with the new governor and he wanted to shut down the trails. That was Brigham Young. He, his, his tactic was we're going to shut down the trails to immigrants because that shows that we have the power. We control the Indians and uh, the wagon trains aren't going to get through if they want to bring federal troops into Utah. So to keep the federal troops out, they threatened that we're going to go ahead and let the Indians attack the wagon trains uh, so that we can show that we can control it and that they, they need to rely on us, uh, us being the, the Mormon church and the leaders there uh, to control the, the immigrants and the wagon trains. And so what would happen is all the wagon trains passed through uh, Utah territory going to either uh, Oregon or Northern California. They would all pass through uh, Utah and they'd split. Some would go on a Northern route that went up through uh, Idaho through City of Rocks and then out and across the desert. And the others would go South down through uh, Las Vegas and then cut across down there. So uh, what they found was there was a series of raids in which cattle were being stolen uh, by Indians uh, but in a couple of them, uh, one, the Duke's train had three people uh, shot. Uh, none died, but they were shot and wounded. Uh, the, I think one of the Idaho trains had some, uh, they'd killed one of the immigrants and stolen their cattle. And then you've got the uh, the, the cattle raid down in, in Mountain Meadows or, or the massacre. But the, the train, uh, the, the, the theory is, is that they were attacked to steal the cattle, and it just went really bad when they tried to do that. Lee was crawling in and that's when he stepped on the, sh- the guy that was watching the, the, the cows down below. And when he realized he'd woken the guy up so that he wouldn't, uh, warn everybody, which this part didn't make a lot of sense to me. He tried to shoot him because obviously if you shoot him, you're going to let everyone know as well. Uh, but, uh, but then when he chased the guy in and, and people recognized that the whites were involved, then they were stuck. So Brigham Young's plan was the Indians are supposed to be doing this raiding. And the people at the City of Rocks also said, yeah, they stole our cattle. And one of the guys was shot. But the next day when they went in, they saw, hey, there's shod shot horses. There's boot marks. There's white men involved with this. So they realized, too, that there were white men involved with this. And so the theory is, is that Brigham Young had ordered cattle raids to try to show that the Indians, that they could control the trails and at Mount Meadows, they got caught. uh, And then to try to keep people from knowing that white men were involved, they just, it got worse and worse. And they eventually uh, got to the point where they massacred everybody to keep them from talking because they knew if they got to California and told that the Mormons were raiding the, the, the cattle trains. Uh, that that would bring a whole lot of trouble. Not only would they have an army coming from the east, they would have people coming from the south, and that's why they did it. And so that's the uh, the theory. Uh, she actually sold me on that. Uh, I think that may very well be what happened. Uh, I don't know that you can say that that doesn't mean Brigham Young was involved because he's the <laughs> one who ordered. It's like saying ordering a bank robbery. And then when everyone in the bank gets killed, say, well, he wasn't responsible when he's the one who ordered the bank robbery. So, um, but it looks like we got several. Yeah. I have
0: one quick comment. My ancestor in the high council made an impassioned speech to them and said exactly what Landon just said. Look, they know we're involved. If we let them go, if witnesses leave, everyone will come back and destroy the Mormons. So it's much like if you were to accidentally witness a mob hit, right? They're probably going to take you out because there can't be any witnesses. So, so that I, I, I believe it. I believe that's exactly
4: what happened. So. Yvonne. Okay. So sorry to go hammer this in, but it was very surprising. So I found the quote in the book that said that, uh, that they had converted the the foncher train so it, it does a lot of background on who these people were spends a lot of time in arkansas as these families and dis, and discusses their this is american massacre that book i'm kind of i guess promoting it but it said that they had converted a lot of their belongings into gold in their their savings and were transporting it along with only their most precious household belongings among the valuables hidden in the floorboards of the wagons or in the ticking of the feather beds was as much as one hundred thousand dollars in gold coins and other currency, at a time when the annual salary of the president of the United States was twenty five thousand dollars a year, leading to speculation that it was indeed the wealthiest wagon train to cross the continent. So you know that was, boring. and then they go on and describe yeah. their other assets, all of the the rich cattle and breeding stock and everything. I mean, they were a note. No, and they passed through Salt Lake. You, though I don't know yeah. if everybody got that thing. Yeah. people pla- knew who this wagon train they passed through Salt Lake. They were shunned by Brigham Young and everybody, and they were denied uh, supplies or anything. They were just completely isolated. But it had to have been noticed that this is wow. This is a plum waiting to be plucked. And I, I don't. I think that all of this. The, I think there had to have been a measure of. Of greed and envy, possibly, like you guys have also said. They these people were, were lived in very poor circumstances in Cedar City.
2: So yeah. Will, Will Bagley makes that same argument that, yeah. that it, they were after the, the wealth of the wagon train. Yep. The the reason the cattle raids become somewhat important is because if you were just after one train, why would you be robbing the other trains at the same time? at the same time or scattering the cattle so that adds a little credence to what they were doing it to everybody it was part of their war plan, but certainly the wealth of the wagon train would have been known and and it should be noted that all that wealth transferred to the church and the people, once it was done, uh, the church got the tithing from all of those yep. cattle uh, that the people stole. Um, so I feel
0: like it started, it was a foundation of the church's wealth. I really do. I know that the next day after the massacre, my ancestor was rebranding the cattle with the church's. Brand like that I know that my own ancestor was kind of told to scatter and run north and he was given at least one or two wagons and ca- you know this was divided and then a lot of it ended up in the tithing stores. so I feel like this was foundational wealth kind of to start off which it's just makes it all the more horrible to me
2: yeah and and uh, Joel uh, Huntington says in the chat uh, he was surprised at the level of national awareness of the massacre that surprised mm-hmm. me too I mm-hmm. I'd never heard time, of it at and the yet time. At the time, yeah. everybody knew about this massacre. It was yep. well known uh, all over the country. Um, uh, so good point, Joel. Uh, Bruce. Yeah. Yeah. I just
3: I, in I read Juanita Brooks's book, and one thing that kind of touched up against my life is I grew up um, near San Bernardino, and with when Johnston's army was coming towards Utah. Brigham Young called the people from the colonies back, and San Bernardino was one of those colonies. And where I grew up is where all the Mormons who didn't go back to Utah, they stayed and settled. And my father was the bishop there for 12 years, and he was always in contact with the descendants of these original Mormon pioneers. The family's names were Pratt, Wilshire, Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. and, you know, I, I can remember my parents talking to them and saying, well, you know, are you going to come back to the church? And they le- they'd left the church in the 1850s, these families. But like the local sporting goods store was Pratt Brothers and Parrish and all these Mormon names were the names of the families who, you know, left the church and didn't go back when Brigham Young called them. So it was kind of interesting that that little piece kind of you know, touched my growing up experience.
2: I appreciate it. Dan.
7: Uh, yeah, I read the Will Bagley book, Blood of the Prophets, and found the story about George Hicks really, really interesting. So George Hicks, um, he was just a like a lay person in the church and um, heard the story about Mount Meadows Massacre um, and then heard Brigham Young say that... Um, that the Mount Meadows massacre, this is on page uh, 258, of Blood of the Prophets. Brigham Young says the massacre at Hans Mill, and that of Joseph and Hiram Smith, and the Mount Meadows massacre are of this character. So Brigham Young said that they were like the murder of Joseph Smith was the same as Mount Meadows massacre. And so George Hicks um, tells all these people in Cedar City and the area that Mount Meadows massacre is evil and just like the the murder, the, the martyr of Joseph Smith. Um, and so they, John D Lee actually threatens or his children actually threaten George Hicks, uh, to kill him. If he keeps bringing this stuff up. So, uh, George Hicks writes to Brigham Young and asks him to clarify what's going on because he, he thinks that the mountain Meadows massacre might be, uh, perpetrated by the church. And I kind of view this as the original CES letter, as the original, hey, what's going on? Why is there this incongruity? And Brigham Young actually writes back, too. And he says, uh, it's long, but the, the, my favorite line is, Brigham Young says, if you want a remedy for why you can't sleep at night, a rope around the neck taken with a jerk would be very, very salutary. I just, I, I really like that. Uh, like the, the, these incongruities um, have happened throughout the church's history and, and people, you know, want that transparency.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. In fact, uh, I'll put this out right here. Um, we, we have a good relationship with Barbara. Um, she's been very willing to answer any question that I've put to her. I got to, we, we went to a, a play with, uh, with, uh, Rebecca and Tom and and a couple others and I I picked her up to drive down there so I got to talk to her for about an hour in the car uh just asking her questions and she she's willing to answer questions so if if at the end of the discussion if there's questions that you still have or something that you say you know this doesn't make sense to me uh email those I I'll send those to her and and I'm sure she'll respond um uh She's been able to answer quite a few of the questions that I've had. Some of them I've said, "Mm, I don't know if I feel that's a very strong (laughs) argument. And other ones I've said, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So uh, feel free uh, to email us with questions and and then I can, you know, get those back and maybe we can even post them on the on the web page and post the answers as well, uh, if you're interested. So, um, another one, uh, another item. Uh, the you know uh, Yvonne, you did a really good job about talking about the Fancher Baker party and how rich they were and where they came from in Arkansas. They were well-known families in Arkansas. Um, uh, we might even have re- Rebecca's son is actually on his mission there, and uh, he called her up and uh, and uh, was actually at the other end of the of the trail. Um, and uh, I'll ask Rebecca to just tell that story just a little bit. But I also want to ask the question about Parley P. Pratt. Will Bagley makes a big deal about Parley P. Pratt and his murder in Arkansas, and that these immigrants were from Arkansas and that this was somehow retribution for what happened to Parley P. Pratt. Uh, Vengeance is mine. They really say that had absolutely nothing to do with it. Will Bagley almost makes the argument that this was a main driving force of it. And so uh, I'd like to kind of open that up, what anyone thinks the role with Parley P. Pratt was, uh, the murder of Parley Pratt in this uh, thing. So Rebecca, you want to tell a little bit just what, you know, what you got from your son?
0: Yeah. And I will say that um, a lot of the things that we heard as motivations, Barbara has said, those were rumors started later, you know, and I think Parley P. Pratt probably falls into that too. So we can discuss that for sure. Um, But yeah, it's funny. My son's out there and he FaceTimes me the other day. He goes, oh, look, I'm at this monument, you know, and he kind of like brings it closer. And I'm like, oh my God. This is the monument in Arkansas um, honoring the Baker Rancher Party. And so I said, well, why don't you read that out loud, you and your companion? <laughs> and so they started reading through it. And of course, those words were chosen by the descendants of the survivors. And it really told the, it told the story in a very unvarnished way, unlike the monuments and the signage that we see
6: here or
0: even that we read about. So it's interesting to see that in Arkansas, it's a very well-known story. They know exactly what happened. Word for word, they go through how the, you know, everything went down and they completely place the blame at the feet of the Mormon church. So after my son read it, he kind of said to him, companion, should we take our name tags off? (laughs) So it's a very interesting uh, scenario out there and just having him on his mission is interesting too. But yeah, I'd love to discuss Carly P. Pratt because I also, I had heard that that is what the saints believed. But according to Barbara, uh, that was just a rumor made up after the fact to justify. But nobody believed or even thought anything about that at the time. So what did anybody read anywhere um, that tells us more about that, Bruce?
3: Yeah, I if I recall in the um, in the Juanita Brooks book, she did address that. And the thing that I I kind of recall from it is the. She was saying that, that that was kind of known. And just basically what I came across is that news spread through wagon trains and word of mouth and stuff faster than I thought would have happened at that time. So I'm not sure if, if there was actually knowledge and any motivation with that, but I I guess from her book, it wasn't a totally unknown event. But I'm not sure, you know, whether there was any correlation between cause and effect there. But, you know, the wagon trains and people coming through brought the news and and stuff. And, you know, how we talked about how, you know, it was a, it was nationally known. And so I think, you know, with the Internet today and stuff like that, things are known immediately. But news was transmitted and disseminated pretty quickly, even in, you know, the kind of pioneer times.
0: No, I think that's correct. But we also know that they also thought they were from Missouri, or they thought that there were members of the mob. You know, the mob always seemed to be coming West,
1: you know, to interact
0: with the Saints for some reason. We also know they thought the gun that killed Joseph Smith was in the wagon train, you know. And according to Barbara, all these things were made up after the fact, you know, to to try to justify the horrific nature of what had happened. So, but, but yeah, I had always heard, oh, they killed the, The prophet, Parley P, and that's why they wanted to, you know, which of course we know that's not true. He was killed by the angry husband of a woman he'd run away with.
3: So, yeah, you mean things made up after the fact, like seeing one personage or two personages in the first?
0: It's it's so unusual. Yes.
3: Kind of
2: revisionist (laughs) history.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Oops, mute. Landon.
2: Yeah, just to tell those who don't know the Parley P, Pat, Pratt angle. Pratt had met a a woman who uh, was uh, basically separated from her husband. And I think he met her in California and he Mm -hmm. asked her to come back to be his wife. And uh, she did. She joined the church. She became like one of his polygamous wives, but she. With the children.
0: She took the children too. That's what really. She and the children ran away. She was from
2: Arkansas. He went back to Arkansas to try to get her and the children. And the
0: husband tried to track the, her
6: down.
2: And the husband tracked him down and killed him in, in Arkansas. He was from Arkansas, the husband. Uh, and so Parley P. Pratt was killed there right almost where from where these this group left. Uh, so Bad Will, ba- Will Bagley in his book makes kind of the argument almost like that that's one of the main driving factors for the, the killing of at Mount Meadows was that Uh, the saints were avenging the blood of the prophets, which is why his book is called Blood of the Prophets, uh, and that the word got to Salt Lake before they got there, uh, before the wagon train got there, and they knew these guys were from Arkansas, and it was kind of taking vengeance for the blood of the prophet. Vengeance is mine, takes the argument that the people were in a wartime mode, the troops were coming, they were replacing the governor, uh, and that the reason that they killed them was, uh, you know, to show their power on the trails. Um, so you, you get this mix and that's why we wanted to do this mashup is to just see all the different angles and all the different arguments and why everybody said, and sometimes you can read multiple accounts different ways and say, oh, I see what's happening here. Or I get an idea that maybe there were more than one factor that factored into this, uh, killing and, and well- just- better understand it
0: do you feel landon that i mean think about so so there's a karen raised um initially there's a cross put on it that says vengeance is mine um and what's the second half of it it says uh, uh,
2: um, say it's the lord uh, sa-
0: say it the lord right so of course we had heard that brigham young had ordered that torn down um now barbara's you know saying that may not be, pop- be the case but the rumor was that then brigham young said and i have taken a little I've taken a little vengeance. So what is he taking vengeance on? That tells me that he at least, did he believe the rumor? Was he trying to promote the rumor? You know, there's also that sense that persecution back east, you know, this was retaliation for that. But again, why would that involve the people from Arkansas? There's just this tit for tat sense. I I kind of got through through a lot of it that somebody has to pay and it's going to be you (laughs) and we're going to find something in that charged environment. So I don't know. I was always curious about those words from Brigham Young. I asked Barbara in an interview I did with her. I said, what did he mean then when he said, and I have taken a little? And she thought that perhaps he was referring to some of the rumors that maybe he was starting to believe them too. Either member of the mob, Parley P. Pratt, gun in the wagon train. So to me, that's a mystery, but intriguing.
8: Yeah. Um,
6: I was just going to say when I was studying that, I can't remember my source, but it it uh, kind of established that the wagon train that had left Arkansas before the murder of Parley P. Pratt yeah. And I wondered if that is what you had also learned.
2: Yeah, I believe it left before. And then uh, one of the people coming back with the news, they had like a buggy. Wagon trains move very slow. We just went to, we were in Wyoming last weekend and uh, went to the Willie Martin handcart disaster. And one of the things we learned is the handcarts actually move faster than the wagon trains did getting Mm -hmm. across. And these buggies could go really quite fast across and that they got back before with the news. And, uh, you know, the Fancher train just happened to be from Arkansas coming in. They certainly, I don't think they thought they were involved, but it was more of a, uh, well, they're from there. They killed our profit. So we're going to take a little vengeance uh, on them, I think was kind of the argument in the book. Uh, Plus the fact that they were a wealthy wagon train (laughs) that had a lot. So I, I think Bagley argued several things were, you know, the main factor behind it. Uh, vengeance of mine is arguing more that it's a wartime uh, crime with cattle and trying to prove that they controlled the, the roads. Bagley also pointed that out, too, that it was Brigham Young trying to flex his muscle to the Army, showing that he could control the the roads. Um, Joel, I see uh, you. you've got your hand up.
8: Yeah, hey, this is my daughter, by the way. We're just a couple streets over from you. Still over, right? Getting ready to leave. <laughs> uh, I've just been thinking about a couple of things when we talk about like what information they had or didn't have. Um, and it feels to me based on, you know, everything we've talked about and seen that they were operating from at least incomplete information, right? Like snippets here, snippets there. And it feels like that all contributed to an overall, as Barbara described it yesterday, a perfect storm of sentiment that all kind of came together in a really bad way. And and the reason I sort of been thinking about that is um, it's super easy, at least for me to look back on, on these people and to vilify them. And I want to be really careful about my comments here because I don't want to um, come across as at all excusing what they did because there's, it's just horrible. Right. But I also think like they were just like us, right. I mean, those of us who have descendants or not, there there's, nothing different about those people compared to us. And, and so I wonder how would I have behaved differently? Like if I were on the state council in Cedar City, I'd like to think I would have done something differently. I would hope so, but I also like can't say that I would have categorically behaved in a more courageous or admirable way than what they did. Um, and part of that is I served my mission in Vienna, Austria. And there were a few really bad Nazi concentration camps in Austria. And talking to some of the people there, um, they were talking about how these uh, Nazi prison guards were just the nicest people ever. They were super kind to their animals and all that kind of stuff. Right. And And as they were talking about these Nazis, I thought, wow, like, that's crazy because it's so easy to vilify and we should um what the nazis did there's zero amount of excuse here coming from me certainly at the same time i always wrestle with this question of how much of it is the process versus the system versus the people and um and how much of that uh drove what they would have done and 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 can i fairly say that i would behave differently i hope so but i'm not sure that i can with certainty say that i would have done a whole lot differently anyway I'll, I'll shut up now <laughs> no, that,
2: no that's a that's a great point in fact we uh, one of the things we went to that was one of the discussion items was you know would we would you have done the same thing how do how do you uh how do you stop this uh group think, uh is very dangerous and uh I think this is a good example of that where everyone believes the same way uh, which leads to nobody questioning anything
8: um yeah and it almost it, it I, I'm I'm not getting political here, and if I were, it's pointed at both sides, but the problem back then seemed to be incomplete information, and I think we've got the same problem today, where, you know, despite immediate access to information, because of our social media, we get channeled and echo chamber information fed to us in a way that feeds us exactly what we want to hear or see, right? Yeah. and so I, again, like part of my wife thinks I'm obsessed with Mountain Battles Massacre, the amount of time I've spent looking at it recently. <laughs> um, but to me, the most interesting part of this are the parallels to today, where uh, I could easily see something like this happening again, given the way that people are so politically stirred up. And if they felt like they were, you know, on, on the side of righteous injustice, justice, right, would they, like, it wasn't that long ago that we had, a, a person carrying a title of liberty at this you know at the at the capitol and <laughs> again, I, it's not political, but it's just a a function of this environment that we're now in today, which I don't think was a whole lot different than what it was back then so.
2: and and that's a great point. and that's going to be our last point that we're going to mention is why is it important today that we learn the lessons from there so uh, if we right. can hold that thought, I want to go back to that. Let's <laughs> and continue. can I
6: just say
0: one more thing? Yeah. I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Joel, because when I think about my ancestor, what I just said, his impassioned plea to the council, they're going to kill our families if we don't kill them. I mean, that is what he thought. Would in, in that circumstance, can we all say we would have done something different if you truly, truly believe that? That's what he believed. That's kind of how I wrap my brain around what he did. He really believed he was having to make this almost a Nephi Laban sacrifice, right? It's better that they perish than our religion and our families perish. So it was a very, very difficult uh time and decision, I think.
3: Yeah, Bruce. Yeah, it just was something that popped into my mind. They were saying that they put up a you know cross on the burial monument and the Mormon church's relationship to the cross as a symbol. And recently it looks like from Reddit, it looks like I assume the Mormon church is having um, Google maps change the symbol for Mormon churches from a Moroni to a cross. And I thought that's just kind of an interesting over the time um, process of how we relate to the cross. And I've also had several family members that I've seen recently sporting a cross and these are active mormons and i'm going like hmm. when i was a kid we avoided the cross completely so that was just kind of a tangent that when you mentioned that there was a cross on
2: top of the monument well I, we did I talk about asked,
0: why there isn't a, yeah go ahead Larry. yeah
2: i asked barbara that i said uh how come when they rebuild it they didn't put the cross with the vengeance is mine on top and um she said i don't know you'd have to that Turley would probably be the best to answer that question, but I have a sneaking suspicion. It's that the church doesn't like the cross, plus it's incriminating and, and, and judging them when it says, you know, vengeance, is mine.
1: vengeance that, is mine. That's what
2: the army meant by that is God will take vengeance for what right. you guys have done here. And they didn't want that self-incrimination on top of that monument that they just built for everyone to come see. That's that's my guess, but that's that's just my personal opinion.
0: Well, and Bruce isn't wrong. We even joked about, I wonder if they'll start adding crosses now to this because they're making big changes. And I think we're doing an episode on that, aren't we, Landon, yep. at some point? Yep. So <laughs> it's very interesting. So Luann.
6: Uh, okay, this has been brushed on, but uh, it seems like the basis of a lot of this forgetting greed um, is fear. And if we are going to say, no, I wouldn't do it, maybe we measure how much we let ourselves succumb to fear in the rhetoric that there is today, uh, the battles that are going on, the extreme religious beliefs, uh, how much of it stirs up fear? And maybe that's what we should avoid. Just a question, I don't know the answer, thank you. That's a
2: great point, Luann, because one thing we we didn't talk about, but is talked about quite a bit in the different books, is the fear of the time. Uh, Brigham Young sent George Albert Smith uh, down to the southern settlements to really whip up the fear. These guys are coming. These federal troops. They're going to. They're going to take away everything. They're going to chase us out, just like they did in Missouri. They're going to do all these different things to us. Uh, Fear was very much uh, rampant, and you also had the Mormon Reformation going at the same time where uh, they were saying, hey, the Mormons aren't living up to the covenants they've made, and there was a lot of hellfire damnation. You're going to go to hell. You need to live better. You need to live tighter. The Lord is not pleased with us, and now we've got federal troops coming, and the Lord's going to, you know, unless we live right. So the people were very much in fear uh at this time and and a lot of that was generated i think sometimes people use fear to uh try to make us act in ways that are different than what we normally would if we if we you know had the time to think about it and and weren't in that position so i i think that's a great point dan
7: so i just want to say like don't forget that um the people that Committed the Mount Meadows Massacre were the pioneers. And don't forget that the pioneers are only those that actually followed their leaders enough to cross the plains. There are plenty more people who um, turned around or who didn't believe. Um, So the people that ended up in Utah were those that believed it so hard that they were willing to go against their moral cores and commit the things that they did. And that, like, I I think we need to understand a little bit more of the context of, of, uh, who, who committed these crimes, kind of like what was said before, like these people, um, were otherwise good people. And it's just so fascinating that they were able to, uh, commit these, these crimes despite their, their obedience and their, and their moral code. Um, there, that, that guy that I mentioned earlier, George Hicks, he wrote a song about, um, what it was like to go down into that iron mission and to go start a new city in southern Utah, um, and I just pasted the, a link to the song. It's on YouTube, um, but it's it's really fascinating to listen to that and get a sense of who these people were.
2: And I think that's a great point uh, as well. Uh, and that was one of the things that we when 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 Barbara told us that the people who were this the militia that were there. Were only the leaders, that made a lot of sense because we were surprised. We were like, nobody questioned this. Nobody questioned killing women and children unarmed. Nobody of all of these, these were the people when she said that though, it's like, these are the hardcore. We will do anything that the Lord asks us. And that's probably why they didn't send out anyone other than the leaders was because they didn't, they knew that there'd be a lot of people that would have a problem with it. So they wanted only those they knew would fall in line and would do what they were told and what they were asked, which is something I think most of us think about when we think of the general authorities. Now, by the time you hit apostle, you're one of those people who've done, who will do anything for the church and you will go to any ends to protect the church. And that's who these men were that were, were there. So I think there is a lesson to be learned before we go to that, because we, we, we do want to end here in about the next twenty minutes. Um, the kind of uh, I, I want to just hit the uh, the investigation to cover up the trial and and what's Brigham Young's role in this um, and and John D. Lee's role. One of the we we went to the courthouse the other day or to look at that quilt. One of the tour guides in there said, "Oh, you're going to Mountain Meadows. Let me tell you, John D. Lee is one of my heroes." And I went. What uh, I don't think many people look at John D. Lee as a hero, and he said, "Well, let, let me explain that." And then he went on to explain that, well, he he was the one who actually ad- admitted guilt and stood up and 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 uh, took the blame, and he took the bullet for everybody else and didn't didn't uh, t- you know defended everybody else and defended the church. And I was like, "Well, that doesn't sound like much of a." that to let everybody off that, that participated in this. And, and he did not stand up and admit what he did. It you know, he was, he was shot when he was like 60 something years old, like 20, 30 years after this happened uh, before he was punished, because he went into hiding, he was running, he was finally captured in a chicken coop hiding uh, in a chicken coop uh, when, when the marshals came looking for him uh, that to me was not courage, but uh, you know, to him, he saw that as, well, he took the bullet. He, he was willing to be the fall guy. Um, so just kind of thoughts. What What's your thoughts on uh, both Lee's role and, and maybe Brigham Young's role in this Bruce.
3: Yeah. I mean, this, this thought comes into how I view everything with my family and this situation. When you have a belief in the afterlife, and that you'll be rewarded or punished in the afterlife. How does that affect your behavior? I mean, when John D. Lee was was uh, executed, you know, was he believing that you know he would be given you know blessings in the afterlife? Wasn't he rebaptized afterwards, posthumously, and stuff? And so when you believe that there's reward, I don't know, in some of the ex-Mormon kind of community, it's called sky cake. If you're going to be given a reward after this life, how does that affect your, um, behaviors? Because, you know, if you believe that, that this life is the only life, when you killed all those people, then you're ending their existence. And, I don't know, that whole concept seems to be problematic to me on how we choose to behave. So that, that's just some of my thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, and I see Nathan's uh, comment there, which is great. Uh, uh, anyone who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Uh, Voltaire, possibly, is who said that. But yeah, I've heard that before. And that's a, a, a great point. What what what's your thoughts on Brigham Young? Anyone's thoughts on Brigham Young's role on in this, and ha, has it changed or was it more solidified? What what did you take out of Brigham Young's? For for me, the surprising t- thing to me is you know after talking to Barbara, um, she actually convinced me that um, it prob that. I believe Brigham Young directed attacks on the wagon trains to show his power to the federal government, and that he was in that he was the one in charge. And I think at Mount Meadows, it probably did go wrong. I don't know that I don't know that I can say Brigham Young said, "Kill that wagon train," but the decisions he made certainly led to the death of those at that that wagon uh, that wagon train. And and so uh, one of the things is I talked with Barbara. She said, "Well, you got to understand, you know, I'm a historian. I can only go off of historical documents that I have. Um, you know, I can't I can't make calls off of historical documents I don't have. I'm not a historian, so I I, I get to go a little bit off of my gut, and my gut just kept telling me there's still." Too many holes here um you know every time there's a, should have been a document that would have exonerated brigham young it wasn't there and it you know it, like it was missing from the documents that normally were there like the, the meetings from the high council where they decided what to do those are missing nobody knows where they're at we have all the other meeting minutes but we don't have those ones um some of the ledger books stuff is missing uh, the fact that Brigham Young never did an investigation, uh, and that to me, the book sounded like he was a poor old man who'd just been deceived by all of his followers because they were too afraid to tell him. Uh, there is no way Brigham Young did not know what happened there early on, and I think uh, someone said that quote that j- just informed you know, really solidified that to me. where, the guy wrote the letter and he said, Well, you maybe should go hang yourself if you're asking questions about this. The simple newspaper reporters went and talked to Indians and got the word from the Indians. And the Indians said, No, they were there. They asked us to come help them. We were asked to do this for them. Um, the Indians were more honest than the than God's church was. Um, um so I see Jerry Lee saying uh, Bagley says it can be proven Brigham Young ordered the massive curve, but it absolutely be proven he ordered the cover up. And that's that's exactly what there, there is. No he was involved in the cover up. <laughs> there is no way those people went that long without getting caught. Turley and, and Brown are arguing that um, he he always said he would help in the investigation. He would turn people over, but he always did it with a caveat. If I feel like the judge is going to give them a fair trial, if he always put a caveat on it. And to me, that is, you don't get to do that when you're, when when you're, when you're the, you know, involved in a crime, you don't get to set the rules. And Brigham Young was always trying to set the rules, which was another thing that said he could have grabbed the guys who did this and instituted justice to save the church and make the, it look like the church took action on those guys and he did nothing uh which which just left me feeling my gut is saying and then when they reinstated his temple blessings uh 20 years after his death I'm going who do they do that for they don't do that for John DeLynn. they don't do that for uh uh you know anyone who who wrote who who defied them but the man who mass murdered was in charge of this mass murder gets them reinstated something there just doesn't doesn't sit right That's
0: well it. and barbara told us because landon asked he asked the hard questions you know that that was to make the family of the john D. Lee family they were very insistent about sort of exonerating him or letting people know that he was more of a scapegoat so they reinstated For the family. But again, like Landon says, that doesn't happen for many families, if any families. And I actually asked Barbara and Richard Turley in an interview with them, if you had found like what Landon is describing documents, minutes, notes that said Brigham Young you know, knew and was very complicit, would you have um, included that in the book? And they both said, absolutely. And I believe they would have, but I believe the documents are missing. And also like Lennon says, those documents and notes and things have been in the church vault for 50 years and a lot can happen. So I don't necessarily know that they had everything to scrutinize. That's kind of how I feel about it. So,
2: So, oh, okay, uh, let's go to the last one then. Why does it matter today? Uh, and yeah. I'll just... Uh, uh open that up uh, we, we, we kind of hit that earlier but
0: I think we have touched on it a lot I think we see a lot of the same patterns happening um, there was in Bagley's book we were told that when uh, the militia turned to fire on the immigrants that someone said do your duty Mormon you know and to me I feel like there are a lot of situations today um, in every realm of Mormonism where you're told Do your duty Mormon, and as someone mentioned before, kind of override your natural sensibilities or your natural gut, Feeling or your natural morality a nephi laban story do your duty mormon now barbara told us that was never said but if even if it was never stated i believe the implication was there like to my ancestor you have got to do what you need to do to protect the church and we just see that over and over i mean you can make you can make a list if it's a parent shunning a child because they're not living the standards and kicking them out if it's a you know citizens in a city um trying to erect a temple and they're being really awful to people that are bringing attention to the fact that maybe this temple, I'm talking about the Cody Hebert temple fight that Landon and I are putting out episodes about, but don't you think that's kind of true Landon? There there are cases today where do your duty Mormon is very relevant. And that's why I think it's really important to be aware.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what we can learn the most from here is you can't just do blind following. And mm-hmm. I think, I think everyone on this group uh, you know, post-Mormons is, are people who are willing to question and ask those questions and, and do those tough things. So, um, I think I think um, the do, do your duty thing is
9: really what bothers me with that theme. And, Rebecca, you talked about the patterns, is that um, growing up in the church for over 50 years, um, never really understanding mountain meadows until I got older, probably in my 30s, 40s. But just going back now and realizing this do your duty was at the expense of treating people like shit in the church, for lack of a better word. I, I, that's what I come up with, that I I see it in my own family. I, I I see that that it's all about the church. And I don't know what church they're talking about because they can disavow whatever church, part of the church they want to disavow at any time and say, well, that's those people or well, they were just a member or they, they did not, you know, everybody's disavowed at, you know, conveniently. And it really bothers me that there's this, there's a responsibility that's never taken and it's put on other people in the church, the members themselves take the load, take the brunt of it or are treated poorly because others are doing their duty for the stupid church. And it really, really bothers me now. And I've sat here, not said very much during the conversation, because yesterday I was really upset. <laughs> Those that were up there, I, I I, did have to walk away for a minute. There's something about having a narrator or, or actually having the book unfold in front of you and you can see it and be physically there. Versus reading it, but being physically there this time, and I've been there four times. It just really, really hit me in a way I didn't expect, and I was very upset and teared up, and had to walk away. And um, and these are the people that I have associated with for a very long part of a uh, period of my life, and I'm just trying to come to terms with, wow, they'll take anybody down this is how the church rolls. And this is where we came from. And it's, it's, it's from the very beginning of time of the church. And I'm really upset at myself for being a part of that right now. So a lot of things going on right now. And so I have, have held it back to say anything because I'm trying not to be emotional about it, but these are just the thoughts that I have as I, as we've been talking about this and just trying to, uh, I'm even having problems with trying to, like how do i talk to my family knowing that they 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 aren't really addressing any of these things and um they're not they're okay with it and they're just going on and everyone's pre- pretending that this is what i don't know or just acting this is this is okay to do our duty because it's the church is true so this is what we a church is true is this is what we can do because the church is true and i i'm i'm not okay with that so Sorry, that was a lot of lot of random thoughts that all came together, but that's
0: <laughs> No, you really summed it that's up. How I you am. Absolutely that's, <laughs> You are very random. We all know. Before so. I start crying. Yeah.
9: I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs>
0: don't stop crying now, Tom. No, don't do it. So, but no, that sums it up, I think, perfectly. Um, that's why it's very, very relevant. And that's why we all feel it. We're not overreacting. We're not, you know, my my own kids have said that to me, young adults. Why do you care so much? Your ancestor, it was, you know, it was century ago, but your grandpa's a grandpa, you know, and it's hard to explain, especially to younger people, why it matters so much today. Steve, welcome. Oh, wait, Rebecca, just a second. Yes. And the last thing I'll say is, is you're saying
9: that, sweetheart. Is that I that I just sat here realizing my children are Our descendants from somebody. Of
0: perpetrators. Yes, they are. That yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You have to wrap That's your brain. All right, Steve. Steve, bring us <laughs> back t- to somewhere. positive. That's right.
10: Hey. So I just wanted to let everybody know I did put a link to Rebecca and I's interview of Barbara. And Richard Turley in the uh, chat yeah so you might, all might want to check that out um and I'm I just wanted to stop in for a little bit because I I'm amazed I even have time to top in this group anymore but I, I just <laughs> want to say you
0: do, Steve <laughs>
10: well and actually it, I felt like the interview that Rebecca and I did was a really important interview um I also think that you know you've spent your life Rebecca, in pursuit of the truth, of having being a, a direct descendant of a perpetrator. And I just wanted to ask you, what was it like for you to finally be able to ask these questions to somebody like Richard Turley, to somebody from the church, to, in one sense, holding them accountable? This must have been something that was really important for you to be able to have that conversation. And maybe has that helped you in your journey uh, that you that you've been having?
0: Yeah, no, that's a good question because I have had these questions. And of course, when you're in an interview setting, you know, you have to have a certain way that you ask things. Of course, behind the scenes, I'm saying to Tom and Landon and other friends, I want to ask them this and I want to demand that they say, you know, but you can't of course do that when you're in another kind of a setting. But I think in that interview with them, I did ask them some things that were a little hard hitting and you know, their answers, some of them were more apologetic. I just kind of dismissed that. But I'll say again, Barbara, I really feel like Landon said that she went right at some of the things. And I will admit that I have changed some of my perceptions on some of the things have more of an understanding. So I guess that would be a takeaway too. today is to tell everybody, um, watch interviews, watch discussions, watch different kinds of people talk about it, um, because you'll learn a lot. And the truth is in there somewhere. You know, between all of these things, but you're right. It has helped me. I will also say there's an amazing play um, written by a woman named David Deborah, Deborah 3D. 3D, and you can access this on a website um, called the Entrata Institute. We can put these links in the notes too. Um, and she, you know, not LDS, a University of Utah professor, um, moved to Utah and stumbled on the story. And she wrote an incredible play about sort of three time periods: the actual events, um, people reckoning with it in the mid 18, you know, late or 1800s and then Juanita books trying to write about it. And it's a really good representation of everything that happened. I think uh, very accurate in its portrayal. So yeah, I would encourage everybody to just, we read books for this, but there's also things to watch. <laughs> a terrible movie called uh, September Dawn starring John Voight as Brigham Young. <laughs>
6: that could be something to
0: watch. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff like that. But yeah, I think the bottom line is don't stop talking about it. Despite what People like my young adult kids and how could they be expected to know it matters. It absolutely matters. And it's incredibly relevant today. So, Jeffrey, you had a question or a comment.
11: Yeah, just I joined late, so you may have discussed this. But one of the things that I find people who have not grown up in the church don't understand is there is an incredible amount of emotional coercion that goes on. In terms of the language that's used, and the a person from the outside, including converts, they hear the language and it doesn't sound that bad. So, in the sense that, and I experienced this when I was on the High Council during Prop Twenty Two in San Francisco, where this was the first uh, defensive marriage referendum, and they the leadership would come to us and say, you know, brethren, you know what you need to do in terms of supporting this effort and the Salt Lake leadership were saying that there was just grassroots support independently from church members. And that was not true at all. You had leaders that were communicating in this, this very coded, passive way. And I wonder if on this, you didn't have the same thing. So it could be that there are no documents, yeah. but it was just you know, Brigham Young telling uh, one of his apostles or stake presidents who had a lot of power at the time, and just saying, you know, brethren, we've we've got this problem that's coming through. You need you guys know what to do, and it doesn't need to be. And I've had this debate with people because they'll say, you know, you, you say that that it's quite coercive around the leadership. I don't hear that language, and I said it's, you don't understand the coding. Anyway, it's, I don't that, know if you've the that,
2: that's absolutely true. Yep. In fact, the Good the point. letter that Brigham Young sent back saying, you know, let them pass. He also said, but let the Indians do what they will. And Will Bagley makes that very argument that that's the code word for uh, you make it look like the Indians did this, uh, whatever happens, and that they knew what that meant. And the one thing that I can't get out of my mind that Will Bagley keeps saying is it's not what did Brigham Young say, but why did the people have to ask? Who goes and asks the prophet, should we murder all these men, women, and children? So somehow they had a thought that it was okay to do that.
0: It was on the table. It was on the table because they had to ask, which is, yeah, that's really an important way to look at it. Steve.
10: Well, just as the gentleman was talking about Proposition 8 and everything like that, it reminds me of, I actually think I even interviewed Randy about it on my show, but Dr. Randy Bell is by all, by all accounts, a, a truly decent human being. And he was asked by the church to run the, in Southern California, in his ward in in, in, uh, in Orange County, California. To be in charge of the proposition eight thing. And without question, he did it. And he was just because that's what they asked him to do. He didn't think about it. He just did it. And now he says one of the greatest regrets of his life is he, he was is, was well, that he did that. And he is, and actually, and it wasn't until he entered in the pulse nightclub shooting, right after it happened, because what he's he's the master of disaster, he goes to all these human causes. He said, I went in there as an LGBTQ bigot. And I walked out of there um, a pro-LGBT person. It was a a life-altering moment that happened to him. But it's just so fascinating that you could have a decent human being like Randy, who who would later identify as doing a truly horrible thing in trying to deny marriage equality to people from California. So I think we have a
11: modern parallel in many ways of how we can see. Sorry, can I jump in there? People might, might not be aware I, I was talking about prop 22 which oh, was... I apologize
10: I I, no, no, I, no, I... But,
11: but, but the re- the reason why I mentioned it is prop 22 and a lot of people don't know this prop 22 the church at the official level denied being involved at all at least prop uh. eight they were saying we're involved and and all your points are valid but I think prop 22 is a better model because President Hinckley was in general Conference saying the church is not taking any position. We're not doing anything. And those of us on the ground were being asked as, I mean, I was at a high council meeting where the state president said, we had a prayer and he said, okay, we're ending the ecclesiastical meeting and now we're going to start a private meeting. And if you want to leave the private meeting, go ahead. But just, you know, those of us that were born in the church, you know how that is. And you're sitting there, 12 people, and then some guy came from Salt Lake uh, to tell us about this saying, we want you as private citizens to go encourage other members of your wards that you're responsible to to donate money to this awful organization that's run by a bunch of bigots uh, uh, at the time. And I, I think they continued. And that, that was the one that really got me because the deception was clear. You know, the, the, all the, the communication from the church was from Kurt McConkie. It was not from the church itself. And they were very careful, although I think they crossed over the line because they're using the church buildings to basically motivate people to behave politically. And then they told us as high council members to go to the bishops of the wards we were responsible to and ask uh, to get quotas for hours from all ward members to go out and canvas neighborhoods, which I've never seen in my entire life. I vaguely remembered around the ERA when I was a child, and I'd always thought the church was apolitical. And all of a sudden, I'm being asked in secret to go out and and essentially passively, aggressively coerce people to uh, to go out and canvass. And, and the interesting thing is I almost resigned my, re- my membership then. And I was super active, You know, had been a bishop. I'd done all the stuff. And I went to the stake president to his credit. And I, and I told him, I said, I think this is just wrong. And I'm not going to have any part in it. And he said, fine, you know, it's not a requirement of your calling. But that didn't change the fact that they were essentially using these passive aggressive tactics to get people to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. You know, I remember telling him, I said, look, if if you're going to motivate a whole bunch of educated, upper middle class people to do stuff, I can name you like five efforts starting with domestic abuse that we should be involved in or we should be like protesting capital punishment or something. It's like, why are you guys focused on this issue? And this is before Prop 8. I mean, Prop 8, they finally, at least they said, this is our official position. But Prop 22, they were lying straight out. I guess that's
0: why it matters. It's still happening today. Right. Derek, did you have a comment? And then I think we'll kind right, of wind right, right. up. We've hit two hours. We could probably talk forever. <laughs> I, I did,
12: but I think we've gotten past it just a little bit. <laughs> uh, it was back when Brandon was talking about uh, the letter that Brigham Young sent that said, and let the Indians do what they may. Yeah. You know, it occurred to me as I was re- re- reviewing those chapters that um, before this had happened, they had used the code of Indians to mean we put someone under, we we threw him in the ditch. And I was just wondering if he was still using that as a code in essence. It was a known code. Uh, the Indians took care of so-and-so apostate. Um, the other comment I was going to make was that uh, of course he was setting him brigham young was also setting up that he would have an excuse if this came back on him you know he would have an excuse that the indians did it and of course that's what he did years and years later he, he six years later in conference when some of my relatives would have been there where they would have heard him say oh the indians when they killed those those uh, wagon train people uh and then one final thing was you know it, it also struck me that brigham young was quite the user uh he really didn't care much for what would happen to those people who uh, who would bear the brunt of the 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 penalties. And as an example of this, as he was as he was talking to the army and and uh, there was that quartermaster that came in and said, hey, uh, can you help supply us?" bring Brigham Young said no. Uh, and he said. Uh, if you come into utah everything will be burnt you won't find a building or a tree or a stick of lumber and you know just thinking about that it was like well wait a minute was was brigham young thinking about his own sacrifice i don't think so you know he was ready to sacrifice everything that every pioneer had built in utah and i'm sure he would have come out fine Uh, and i I think I think that because I look at the beehive house when you know my pioneer settlers were out in Roy Utah and covered in
2: dugouts, (laughs) log cabins, dugouts. Yeah,
12: (laughs) Brigham Young didn't care much for for what what penalties people might pay. That was my comment, but I know it took us back a little bit from where we were. No,
0: no, it didn't. It's all very relevant. That's exactly it. Using people for a certain purpose without thinking about the consequences. And think about Prop 8. (laughs) It is such a great example. Those that did donate, maybe not realizing what they were doing, lists were published of people that donated, and that comes back to haunt people today. They can get in... uh, trouble uh employment wise because they donated i mean we had a, a certain members of a certain you know socioeconomic level were definitely taken to special firesides and nudge nudge wink wink as somebody mentioned in the comments you know what to do you've got to donate and i know people that it's come back to haunt so any final sure. thoughts landon uh, there's so much we could talk about how it's so relevant today but i think we've All touched right. on some things that make us think
2: I, I just hope this trip, I know everyone didn't get to go on the, on the trip, but we like to try to do these because I think it brings it uh, to life uh, when you get to do those. We're going to be reading Devil's Gate uh, in a couple months. We were just in Wyoming and went to Devil's Gate, Martin's Cove. Uh, I think that... We may do a field trip there, too, uh, when we do that yeah. or, uh, a little bit after. I don't know if that's dead of winter or not. <laughs> don't yeah, know not dead, dead of winter. That would
0: bring it too much to yeah,
2: home. too much so, to right. life. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I hope you guys have brought this to life. We sure had fun with the people who came yeah. down. It was a good time. Oh, it, Yvonne, it's been wonderful. Uh, and I, I, we have, have to shout out
0: to Yvonne yeah. and Charlie for um, letting a lot of us stay in their amazing Airbnb. And I'll give a little advertisement if anyone's headed down in into the uh, St. George area and want an incredible place to stay. This is the place to book. It's an amazing, amazing house and just so comfortable and perfectly decorated. You can see behind me and they're just so generous. So yeah, you know, anyone that's headed this direction, this is
2: the place to stay. I'm not kidding. So <laughs> I'm contact Yvonne and Charlie. Yep. So. Contact
0: Yvonne. That's right. Okay. Let's move to our final slides really quick and we'll wrap this up, at least this part of it. So Let's see. Okay, our next uh, book coming up. We just finished Mountain Meadows. There we go. Our next book is going to be, and we have been meaning to do this for three years. I'm not kidding. We are finally doing it. We're doing The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark by Carl Sagan. And Lynette, I think, is here somewhere. So, Bruce, you'll have to flip the spotlight over to her. She's going to briefly give us a preview if she's here. Is she here? My screen is not on. Okay, good. Sorry, Lynette. My screen is limited today. So, yeah, we'll have Lynette... for a second. She's the discussion leader.
1: Here we go. Hi there. So uh, I was really excited about doing this book because my husband is a scientist. And so um, I thought it would be a great book for me to read. And when I told him I was reading it, he said, oh my goodness, that's a very famous book. I use quotes out of that book all the time. So that made me really excited about it. If you've never heard of Carl Sagan, he was an astronomer who became very popular in the 1970s and 80s, uh, especially because of his television program, um, Cosmos. And I remember watching that when I was young and thinking it was a pretty exciting show. Um, he worked with NASA a lot. And I think one of his main um, points of interest was SETI, you know, the search for for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, but one of the things that he noticed was that he thought many of us We're not skilled in science, or at least we're not taught how to think as a scientist. And so one of his projects was to bring science to the general populace. And he does that in this book. If you haven't had time to read it, I'd like to point out that um, it's basically a series of essays. So you could pick your favorite chapter and read it and get a lot of the ideas that we'll be discussing next month. Um, One of Carl Sagan's ideas was to fight ignorance, superstition, and pseudoscience. And so that's where the name of the book comes from. The demon-haunted world, of course, is the world full of superstition, and science can act as a candle in the dark to light the way to lead us to some truths. So um, I just hope everyone is able to read at least part of the book and join us next month.
2: You're, you're, muted. you're muted.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh my goodness. Okay, I was going to say that uh, this is going to be fantastic. And as you can tell from that brief preview, Lynette is the perfect person to take on this book. It's going to be amazing. And, and also she said, if you can't read the whole thing, Essays pick and choose and then you can come and discuss you can always discuss even if you haven't finished the whole book. Okay, very quickly media on the radar for the good book club and we have the good media club where we curate um, things in you know film documentary TV that have to do with post Mormonism or interesting topics you can find that on Facebook if you'd like to join and get that information. Um, We have the good book club podcast um, which is the audio version of the good book club and you can find that wherever you uh, go to your favorite podcast platform um, to access it just look up the good book club we're also on youtube um, the good book club for post mormons and you can revisit uh, meetings you've um, not been able to attend or watch something again if you'd like to and that's really fun to access that let's see um Mormonish podcast Landon and I run that uh we've talked to a lot of book club members quite often so it's fun that's on YouTube you can look up Mormonish podcast and we have episodes there of interest all kinds of different topics lots of things we talk about at book club and other ways that you can contact us if you're not a member of the book club but you just showed up today for this topic you can send me an email at the club at mail not gmail.com and get more information on how to get in touch with us um we typically mostly interact through Facebook you can look us up at the good book club that's our little uh logo right there and join we have lots of fun conversations about the books and we get out information about um, other activities we're also on instagram and I, i think we're not so much on tiktok anymore we still have to figure that out